This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Atlantic hurricane season is around the corner, but the Federal Emergency Management Agency is already pretty busy. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell explains. Do veterans trust the Department of Veterans Affairs? New data is in, and the VA's Chief Veterans Experience Officer tells you what he thinks the numbers mean. And the number one story of the week, the pandemic's impact on the federal footprint. Two former Public Building Service Commissioners on the workspace of the future. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is working 121 major disasters. The pandemic has caused almost half of them. Emergencies like ransomware attacks and COVID vaccine distributions on top of prepping for hurricane and wildfire season all fall to Deanne Criswell, the FEMA administrator. The Senate confirmed her on April 22nd. Madam Administrator, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I think a lot of people think that you're just managing a few major things, the things that are in the headlines. Review the full landscape, please, of the responses that you're engaged in now at FEMA. Welcome, ma'am. Well, thank you first for uh, having me on today. I've been looking forward to having this conversation. You know, as you stated, we have 121 major disasters that are currently um, active within FEMA. Um, and the majority of those are for COVID-19, right? Every state and territory received a disaster declaration. And so we have staff supporting each state with their ongoing response and recovery efforts from that. Um, but we're also supporting the recovery efforts from disasters that have happened over the past few years. You know, we don't just see a hurricane season anymore. We see a wildfire season. We see heavy rains that we saw earlier this year in Louisiana, ice storms in Texas. And so all of these things um, continue their recovery process. And those are part of, and the majority of the other part of the 121 disasters that we are managing. I imagine that stretches your workforce. What's the condition of the response workforce today? What do you need skills-wise or what do you need more of? And how are the folks doing that are doing this work every day? You know, I'll start by saying that FEMA has the most dedicated public servants that I think the government has to offer. And our, our employees have been committed to helping survivors um, before, during, and after disasters at all times. Um, they have been stretched, right? We have been working since the 2017 hurricane season, um, supporting multiple responses and then the ongoing recovery efforts from those. Um, then we put COVID-19 on top of that. And as I said, every state and territory received a declaration. Um, but, you know, we're not, uh, um, uh, we, we managed multiple disasters all the time. And so it's not something that is new to us. And so our team, we work really hard to make sure as we continue to do our ongoing support of state and local uh, jurisdictions that we give our team the rest that they need and get them reset for what is coming, the peak of wildfire season and the peak of hurricane season. And we've been in the process of doing that over the last several months to make sure that our staff are ready to respond. FEMA has been on the leading edge over the last half decade or longer at uh, acquisition techniques and processes to make sure that materials are where they need to be using techniques from the private sector and reshaping the government techniques. 
What do you have, uh, if anything, on the docket to try to accelerate that process even more, Madam Administrator? You know, managing the supply chain and the logistics that are needed to support disaster response is such a critical element of what FEMA does. And we worked really closely with the private sector uh, managing the supply chain um, in response to COVID-19. And it's that continued relationship that we're continuing to expand upon to make sure that we can learn from uh, the private sector and how they were able to increase their resource distribution and what we can do to make sure that we tap into that, that level of capability um, when we respond to the next um, major disaster that happens. Um, that partnership with the private sector is critical, one, to just learn from their expertise, but two, partnering with them at the time of um, so we can make sure that people get the resources they need when they need it. I know that you're preparing for the hurricane season, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. What else are you preparing for today that you know you can anticipate and how are you preparing for something god forbid like another covid that we don't know that it's coming it just shows up one day yeah, it's a great question, right? So we know that we're in hurricane season right now. The peak of hurricane season will, you know, happen starting in about August, but we're seeing an increase in wildfire season. And so we're working really closely. Our regional administrators do such a great job across our 10 regions to work with their state directors and understand where their capabilities are, where their needs are, so that we can help them plan for these emergencies. You know, we've moved away from kind of a uh, six season of disasters and we really are seeing year-round events um, that require support that state and locals um, either need to be prepared for themselves or um, when needed reach out to the federal government for assistance. I think one of the things that we do best here is that helping people before part. Um, we have a number of programs, um, grants, technical assistance that really help the state and local jurisdictions increase their own level of preparedness because at the end of the day it's really a system. It's an emergency management system that comes together. The disasters start and end at the local level. We need to make sure that they're ready to do that. The states help them with the resources they have. And then if it exceeds those uh, capabilities, then the federal government can come in and assist. Madam Administrator, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you so much. Coming next, do veterans trust the VA? Straight ahead on Government Matters, brand new data on the veterans' experience. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. New data from the Veterans Experience Office at the Department of Veterans Affairs says 79% of veterans trust the agency. Trust in the VA from veterans is up 24% since 2016. John Burstler is the Chief Veterans Experience Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. John, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. How did you complete the survey, the mechanics behind the numbers that you have on what veterans think about the VA? Yes, sir. Well, thanks so much for having me. And it's an honor to be uh, able to talk about uh, these, this fantastic data um, that, we're, uh, now with, that we've been collecting for several years, um, but now with Secretary McDonough um, coming on uh, to, 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 to now serve and, and really expand our sacred duty to serve more veterans, families, caregivers, and survivors has really challenged the experience office and many of our colleagues to publish these, the, these trust scores on a more routine and transparent basis. Uh, so, so we have been uh, collecting this data, uh, the V signals is what we call it, or veteran signals uh, surveys uh, since 2016. 
And over that time, we have seen a, a huge, a dramatic increase, 24% increase over that time in what we call VA uh, trust scores, which measure ease, effectiveness, and emotion. And I can talk a little bit more about that, but there's been over 6 million respondents, which give us uh, a, just a, 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 a huge amount of qualitative and quantitative feedback. So on the qualitative side, we actually get open text comments, which about 66% of those co uh, comments are actually uh, compliments on, on their care that or the services and the benefits that veterans receive from VA. About 20% uh, of those are concerns and 13% are recommendations on how to improve care or the delivery of benefits. So we pay attention and respond to each of those uh, responses. And on the quantitative side, of course, we're, we're asking specific questions that veterans can either strongly agree with, agree with, be neutral on, or disagree or strongly disagree. So it's almost very similar to a net promoter score system um, and, and trust agreement. Um, you have uh, one of the demographic notes that jumped out at me is this, uh, and Nicola Grisco on Federal News Network wrote about it in this way. Older veterans tend to trust VA more than their younger counterparts, while men tr tend to trust VA more than women veterans. You have a tremendous cohort of people that you're serving. World War II generation all the way up to war on terror with a, a large group in the war on terror uh, or, uh, group and also uh, among Vietnam veterans. What do you think the difference is in those cohorts that you have older vets that trust VA more than younger? Uh, that, yeah, that's a great question. And we are conducting, so our, our offices um, has the unique opportunity to conduct all of the human-centered design work for the, the, the VA enterprise-wide. So not just healthcare, not just benefits, not just cemetery and memorial affairs, but every, every part of VA. And what we're doing to uncover more of the insights from that human-centered design process and when, and when also paired with the V-Signal survey data is to better understand what the customer needs are based on age, based on gender, based on sexual orientation, based on um, race and ethnicity, so that we can design better for many of the underserved customers uh, that, we're, that we're working with. And when I say customers, of course, I mean veterans, families, caregivers, and survivors, so many different types of customers that we do serve, not just veterans. And so it's in incredibly important for us moving forward is, to, yes, these trust scores are fantastic. Yes, we have great capabilities and tools to collect that data and to analyze that data and continue our work. But how can we, we better design for those, those populations, particularly veterans under 50 uh, and those under 40 and even under 30 who trust VA a, a, a lot less and women veterans compared to ma ma male veterans who trust VA a lot less? How can we design specifically for these populations so they not only become uh, our, our, our our customers, but we but we can we can make sure that they choose VA for the rest of their lives. You will you'll survey veterans about COVID nineteen. What will you ask them? Will it be directly related just to the VA care they received regarding COVID nineteen, or will there be other issues about uh, the coronavirus that you want to ask your vets? We're actually uh, going to be measuring their their experience in act in getting the vaccine. At, uh, at VA facilities nationwide. And so uh, VA has distri distributed or vaccinated millions of veterans, families, caregivers, and survivors. And it's been an incredible effort that the Veterans Health Administration has been able to, to really uh, uh, you know, assist our country in, in, com in, in, com in overcoming um, the, the, the difficulties of the pandemic and also make sure that vaccines are incredibly accessible. So we're not only going to be uh, asking veterans you know, was it easy, you know, to get care, to navigate, to get to get the, the to register for the, the vaccine appointment? 
was there, what were they satisfied with the experience? Did they feel respected? Do they trust VA to continue to deliver this kind of care in the future for them and, 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 re, and report on that so that we can continue to design for future vaccination efforts? You know, you know, considering that the fact that we may have to have booster shots in the future, how can we better design the experience based on all of that data that we're collecting? We're also going to be surveying veterans, families, caregivers, and survivors around why they why they they're choosing not to get a vaccine or if they may be more less confident in the vaccine so that we can better design not only outreach and engagement efforts but also the the enrollment or the appointment process and the, the actual delivery of the vaccine when they arrive at a va facility john we have about 30 seconds left and you also are going to engage uh, short surveys for your employees what do you want to learn from the team inside the va uh, and how do you expect that to manifest itself among the people that you serve? Yes, and I think this is critically important because you can't have a world-class customer experience without a world-class employee experience. So uh, right now, like most federal agencies, VA has an all-employee um, all survey once a year. So that's all like kind of like your annual checkup. Well, what we want to do in partnership with our, 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 our partners at the Human Resources Department is to really provide more of that cons consistent check-in and ensure that we're not only you know, understanding that employee experience from onboarding to promotion to retiring, but also designing around that to make sure that our employees have that world-class experience so that then they can give that world-class experience back to the customers. John Borsler, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Coming next, the number one story of the week. Brick and mortar takes on a new meaning. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the back to the office movement could upend federal real estate. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week. The Biden administration says federal agencies can lift limits on the number of employees agencies allow in the workplace. Agencies have to turn in their return to office plans by July 19th. Those plans could affect the entire federal property strategy. Norman Dong is managing director at FD Stonewater. He served as commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration under President Obama. Dan Matthews is head of federal sales at WeWork. He served as commissioner of the PBS at GSA for President Trump. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, Norm, I ask you first, what's your takeaway from what we're thinking about or should be thinking about, not just six months from now, but two years from now and five years from now about the federal real estate footprint? I think the consensus that we're hearing as we hear from agencies on this topic is that you know, life is going to be different as we emerge from the pandemic. We will see an increase in telework and remote work, probably not at the levels that we saw during the height of the pandemic, but we're not going back to 2019 uh, either. And I think the, the principle here is that we really should be designing for the future and not for the moment. And as we think about what agencies will need in the future, it really is not going to be one size fits all. We're going to see this question about telework and remote work vary by agency mission and by function and by position. And I think you saw that reflected in the OMB guidance that was released yesterday. Dan, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program uh, as well. What does that designing for the future look like, both from the GSA perspective in what resources and tools it needs to provide for agencies and from the agency perspective itself? Everybody that I've talked to says what Norm just said, which is one size won't fit all. But how does an agency determine what size fits it? 
It's a great question. I think the short answer to it is it's going to take some time. And so if there was one word that I would use to describe the federal real estate portfolio post-COVID, it's going to be uncertainty. Uncertainty in terms of when people are going to be working, where they're going to be working, how they'll be working, and how, how much space the federal government ultimately is going to need for federal office space. That's going to be a big question. It's going to evolve over time. They're not going to know initially. Uh, OMB, OPM, and GSA put out a memorandum just yesterday on return to the office. And there was an interesting line in there about tracking utilization of facilities and office space. They're going to be encouraging that to build that data so that they have some insight into what the actual need will be over time. But with that uncertainty, the tool that the government really needs to, to, to lean on at this point is increased flexibility. Federal real estate, for the most part, is a pretty inflexible, capital-intensive endeavor. And they need to inject some additional flexibility, additional tools, so that as they reduce their footprint, not knowing exactly what they're going to need, a certain portion of that footprint should be uh, obtained through more flexible type of arrangements that allow them to get in and get out quickly without massive capital expenditures or long-term liabilities. Norman, what are the implications of that for GSA in particular and the kinds of deals that it does both in owning and leasing space? I think as we emerge from the pandemic, you're going to see some rethinking of conventional wisdom. And as Dan was just describing, agencies still face considerable uncertainty, and they're still trying to figure things out. And it's important to maintain some flexibility. And we saw that in some recent guidance from GSA in terms of lease term strategy. The conventional wisdom over the past decade or so has been go for that longer term to be able to capitalize on favorable leasing rates that we're seeing in many markets. That's being slightly recalibrated now, given the uncertainty that we're seeing as we deal with and as we emerge from the pandemic. So GSA has recently come out with some guidance that really kind of stratifies the thinking a little bit in terms of, all right, when you see that you've got a long-term requirement and you know what the space and facilities needs are for that requirement, and that's often true for like specialized space for like land ports of entry or courthouses or national security functions. So when you clearly understand what you'll need for the long term, then go for that long term lease term strategy to be able to capitalize on the better financing and the better rates that you see with that longer term commitment. That having been said, there are other functions where folks are still trying to kind of figure things out and there's less certainty about what's required for the longer term. And in that case, what GSA is advising to do is to go for something that's shorter, probably around the four to six year time frame, to be able to kind of sort through that uncertainty and to better map out an agency's requirements for the longer term. Uh, Dan, you mentioned the uncertainty, and, and I think you're right on that. Given uh, what Norm just laid out there, do you think there's a period of time that agencies kind of need to get their thoughts or strategies together in order to uh, figure out what, uh, to, to try to gain some certainty, or does the flexibility that you're suggesting give agency, if, if GSA is able to deliver to that, that, does that give the agencies the flexibility they need to take their time and really think through what their needs are going to be in the out years and not try to come up with something in sh for the short term? It's a, it's a great question, Francis, and I think it's, it really comes to the, a key issue, which is a tremendous risk for the federal government. <clears throat> I think all things being equal, 
having uncertainty and indecision about what the future may hold may lead some agencies to, to try and do nothing, just hold on to what they have until they figure it out. But the reality is the federal office portfolio is much larger than they need right now. And a strategy of holding on to what you have while you wait to figure it out over the next two, three years is going to cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for effectively empty buildings or largely empty buildings. That's not a good strategy. And it's a high risk for GSA because uh, agencies could turn back space to GSA. So that's where they really, if I were sitting in that job right now, I'd be looking at the core portfolio, meaning what you own and what you lease in traditional lease terms. And I'd be looking to reduce those two rather significantly. So when leases expire, allow some of those leases to expire, then try and bring additional flexibility and other types of products into the portfolio that allow them to scale up or down to deal with that uncertainty. And I, I would really urge agencies to, to look to the private sector, smart companies, they have the same issue, right? They're dealing with these same questions and they're saving money now. They're making decisions now while they are learning over the next year or two what it's going to look like so they can plan for the long term. But there are strategies they can use and they should turn to the private sector to try and figure out how to reduce, save now while they're making those decisions as opposed to just holding on a, onto everything while they figure it out. That will be a very expensive proposition. Dan Matthews and Norman Dong, thanks very much. I appreciate your time today. Francis, thank, thank you, you for the opportunity. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that 
the agencies will be able to access that. The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.